There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In March of 1995, David Smith's six-floor office in a building opposite News Limited's Australian headquarters in Surrey Hills was transformed. Once the drab anonymous workspace of the drab anonymous Smith, it was now the war room, the centre of operations for News Limited's clandestine raid on the Australian Rugby League. The military symbolism was everywhere in the reporting of the April sneak attack and in News Limited's own internal discussions of their battle plan. From the earliest stages of the planning, the modus operandi was clear. It was to be a lightning attack. As with any war, however, not everything went according to plan. This is part two of Blitzkrieg, the seventh chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Right, welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you going, Andy? Good day, mate. I'm well. Uh, this is the big one. In many ways, everything we've been talking to has led up to this moment and everything we are going to talk about spills out of this. Chaos, mate. So a, a lot of pressure to get this one right. Can I just say with that intro, was there any need to bury David Smith like that? <laughs> well, I, I think once we run through the Blitzkrieg battle plan, which is what we're going to be spending this episode doing, uh, you, you'll see that I think I was valid to, to run him <laughs> down. But maybe a bit too personal. I, I, I get you there. So this conclusion of this chapter is focused on the Super League Blitzkrieg attack on April Fool's Day. The next chapter will be the ARL response. So this is a real Super League focus. And the next chapter is when you see it really spin out of control once the ARL launches their counterattack. Uh, so just as we get started, I want to note that in some cases it will seem like we're covering a particular aspect of the war in very short detail. And when that's the case, usually it's because there's a standalone episode coming. So for instance, Canberra, there's so much to talk about with Canberra in terms of Super League that we couldn't possibly fit it into this episode. So they get their own chapter a bit down the track. But I, I really like getting the tweets and emails from people saying, oh, are you going to cover this? Are you going to cover that? If anything, it's a little checklist for me to, to make sure I, I am covering everything. So please keep that coming if you are worried that we're leaving anything out. Absolutely. Uh, and just uh, one a piece of errata as we get started. Uh, very important. I don't, I don't think we've got any more notes or, or corrections than we did about your mention of the Mega Drive game in 1996. The ill-fated ARL Mega Drive game, yeah. Yeah. So we heard from a number of listeners, Paul Stolznow, Alistair Dean, Dan Barker, David Hunter, all writing to us to say that the PC game of that year was the one that was licensed, but it was only the ARL clubs that were licensed. So you had real players on that side and, and fake made-up names on the, the Super League <laughs> Can side. Can you believe that it, like, it infected children's video games? That's how deep this war went. And as silly as it is that we're talking about this 23 years later, it really kind of means something. That, <laughs> like, it, there's something so perfectly symbolic of that. <laughs> well, we can give you the license, but only for the ARL play. <laughs> uh, but whatever, the con consensus was that it was a terrible game. So I think you were right on, on that respect. <laughs> 
Uh, and just as we get started, I'm going to reverse things this week and talk about my book recommendation at the start. And this is actually one that we talked about only a few weeks ago. But I, I think it's crucial that we acknowledge Mike Coleman's Super League book again. So this is a flawed book in many ways. I think it was a bit of a rush job. There's some mistakes in it and inconsistencies, you know, times where one person was in two places at once, that sort of thing. But on the whole, especially in this period of the Super League War, this April Fool's Day attack, I don't think we could have done this show without that book as a reference. Yeah, I mean, it's as good as you're going to get for the era because, I mean, have a look at the issues we're having with this show, you know, correcting stuff and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Because there's so many murky details and false memories and conflicting viewpoints and yeah. what have you. But the inside info Mike Coleman was able to get, you know, obviously he was a writer at the Telegraph at the time, so it slants a little towards Super League. I've heard some people say that it was like the Super League account, and I didn't th see it that way at all. I thought it was fairly balanced. I actually felt he was he's an ARL man. Mm. Well, down. yeah, there you go. So, I, I, yeah, I don't, I didn't think it was a biased account, but it, it's a very, very important book. So, as we get started, just I wanted to acknowledge that again. So we're going to start with looking at the battle plan for April Fool's Day. And we heard at the top about the War Room, David Smith's News Limited office. This is where in March of 1995, a lot of the logistics were drawn up and a lot of the different points of attack were made. So it was David Smith working with a management consultant, Dane Rainberg. You're looking at ARL schedules, co coordinating flights, booking hotel rooms and all that sort of thing. Uh, and you can see that, you know, a 24-hour secretarial roster was drawn up so that there was constant support and always things in the works. They hired private jets and they managed to get two private jets for the weekend raid, one of which was owned by Kerry Packer. It's incredible, isn't it? And Dane Rainberg said, imagine if Kerry knew what this plane was being used for. <laughs> and during the actual weekend, it was, you know, a plane was in midair, you know, flying to Perth and then got some news and had to, you know, divert back to Brisbane. There was all these kind of things going on. Uh, and much of what we know about the raid came out in the, the court document. So from September, October of 1995, for the first time, you're really getting an understanding of, of everything that was going on. And a lot of the court case referred to uh, the whiteboard that was in David Smith's room, and that was used to draw up all the battle plan and, you know, put in all these points about this happening and this person doing this are uh, some really important insightful stuff uh, so we mentioned last week that there was no mention of peter moore on this board that it was gary mcintyre that was the bulldogs contact um, and the board's full of revelations like that that you'll be hearing about over the next few episodes and just one example of that that i'm putting in now because it doesn't really have much consequence on the rest of the story but graham lovett you'll remember his name one of the original board members of the arl set up in 1983 someone who had a sports management company that ended up getting bought by news limited so while he was on the arl board there was a feeling that there was this conflict of interest between his two roles and both sides thought that he was a spy for the other one <laughs> and this whiteboard actually revealed where his loyalties ultimately lay so he resigned from the ARL in December 1994 and was, you know, mentioned on the board as a, as a key operative giving inside information oh my God. to News Limited. And I don't know how much he was doing of that before he resigned, but certainly once he didn't have that conflict of interest, he, you know, used that inf inside information to, to help the news cause. Very Cold War-ish. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? I love the rugby league names, Gary McIntyre, Graham Lovett. <laughs> 
So when you think about it, you, you've mentioned it many times that it was so apt that it was on April Fool's Day. But the actual reason that that weekend was used in particular, uh, it was chosen specifically because most of the teams that were going to be targeted would be playing out of town. So you had, you know, Canberra and the Cowboys in Townsville, the Reds and Cronulla in Perth, Brisbane playing in Brisbane. And so that that was the reason the Bulldogs were signed on the Thursday. So they could be taken care of. That was out of the way and they had the rest of the weekend free to leave Sydney mm-hmm. and get the rest of the teams and players they needed. But John Rebo was on record as saying that getting the Bulldogs was absolutely critical, saying it was the heart of them, the heart of Sydney. And I, I think you can take that heart of Sydney in a number of ways. Like geographically, they're well positioned. And as the most successful Sydney club of the you know 10 or 15 years before, plus you had the Peter Moore factor, you had they were like an old traditional team, it was a real dagger for the ARL to get them. Yeah, I think that would have worked with Parramatta as well for the heart comment. Yeah, yeah, Parramatta would have worked too. It's interesting that so much hinged on the on-field success in recent times, a rugby league trope for the it, It's always the way, isn't it? <laughs> but because of that, there was no better club to get than the Bulldogs in terms of Sydney. Mm. But that Bulldogs deal was also done under a veil of secrecy with the other, the rest of the team not really finding out at that time on that Thursday night meeting. So th- this was Steve Price in another classic, the first I knew of Super League was when I opened the papers <laughs> on April 1, quote, The first time I heard about Super League was on April Fool's Day 1995 when I opened the newspaper to find that News Limited had launched an undercover raid on the ARL. I actually started to panic. As the days passed, I would hear more and more stories about players signing with Super League or staying with the ARL, but I hadn't heard anything from either side. I was starting to wonder if I was wanted at all. Obviously, they had a pecking order and spent those first few days trying to get as many big-name players and as many clubs to sign as possible. Um, So sort of surprising, but at the same time, it showed you the News Limited strategy, which was to attack from the top. So that started with getting the coaches and then going after the star players and hoping everything would fall into place from there. Yeah, interesting uh, angle. I suppose it makes the most sense. And on top of that, they thought that the clubs they were targeting were a done deal anyway. So, and you can see with Newcastle, they made a key mistake there. But so the plan was for Canberra to be signed in Townsville on the Friday night. On the same night, the Sharks and the Reds in Perth, and then Brisbane to be signed on the Saturday morning. So that would free up Rebo once Brisbane was signed on the Saturday morning. Illawarra were going to be called later that day. Auckland would be signed on the Sunday after finishing their game with that done with those clubs all wrapped up they'd be arriving at the ARL on Monday morning to negotiate surrender terms and would be operating from such a position of strength that the ARL would have no choice but to you know grab any bone offered to them so that was Dave Smith's brilliant plan (laughs) got some right but some of that didn't work out so let's have a look at how it actually broke down so we'll start with Canberra being signed on that Friday night. So they were heading up to North Queensland for their first ever game against the Cowboys, basically taken straight from their plane to Townsville Casino, where Lachlan Murdoch and David Smith were waiting for them in a hotel room. And so some of the Canberra players had been filled in that something was happening. We mentioned Daly and Stewart having some knowledge in our last episode. Bradley Clyde said that he didn't know that Super League would be talking to them till they got up there. They knew something was going on, but what it was, they didn't really know. But So they arrived in the hotel room. They gave the spiel and basically given contracts to sign on the spot, which 18 of them did there and then. And they had specific money in the contracts? Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was part of those March plannings was to put a certain value on different players. It's odd that they didn't. Some of the players didn't say, "Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind fifty grand more." You know. Yeah. So this becomes a real bone of contention down the track. Yeah. The players who accepted things at face value took what they were offered and saw that you know three weeks later you get a Steve Edmed situation. <laughs> Uh, and and in a lot of cases, news did. If if you're a Steve Renoff or someone like that, news would you know bump you up once those contract figures started being all over the place. Mm. But interestingly, the Cowboys weren't signed at that same time, so they weren't signed until the following weekend uh, after a home game against Brisbane. Which, on the one hand, it shows you they're not a priority. That it was that strategy of getting the big names. The Cowboys as a club were left out of the initial Super League planning. There was no place for them when they were first putting it together. And look at the team they had in 1995. There's not one player in that squad that would move the needle as much as you know 10 or 15 of the Canberra squad would. Yeah, but they wanted to know what sort of powerhouse Townsville would become as, yeah. a, as a region. Yeah, and if nothing else, it seems like a bit of a, a waste of time to be up there and not sign them. It would have been a useful bargaining chip to have yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So Canberra, one of the easiest sells, given how keenly they were involved in it from the start. So now you have the top players at Canterbury signed. You have most of Canberra signed. That same night, you're getting Cronulla and then the next morning, Brisbane. So the aim was to get those first four clubs that had been involved from the start or near to and move on from there. So that Friday night in Perth, Cronulla over there for their game against the Reds. Uh, it was Malcolm Node. Who was who was then running News Limited newspapers and Shane Richardson from the Sharks to sign them up. So again, it was arrive at their hotel from the airport and be ushered, this case to a restaurant where Malcolm Node was waiting for them and gave them the pitch, offered them the contract. Again, most of them signed on the spot, and again, most of them signed on the spot. So uh, Mike Coleman tells it this way: As each walked out with a smile on his face and a check in his hand, his teammates would ask, "How'd you go?" Invariably, the answer was a thumbs up as the cheque was examined, folded and put away. Well, it must be nice going to work and then getting double your money. (laughs) And one player who'd already had his money doubled was E.T., who was signed earlier that afternoon. And when you talk about you've got to have this player and you've got to have this player when you're going for the players at the top, E.T. is absolutely critical. Yeah, you forget how big he was. Like, he was on everything, like any ARL promotion. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've heard about a video game he had, um, <laughs> the fishing shows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously the face of Cronulla, but so much more. He was the face of the ARL for, you know, the better part of a decade. Yeah, big signing. So he was signed on the Friday afternoon before the rest of them and shows how important that club was to him because when Malcolm Node gave him the pitch, the first thing he said was, what about the juniors? You know, that's all he wanted to know. What was the plan? Like, how are you going to look after this club? You can say a lot of things about ET in recent years, but you know, a club man he is. Yeah. But at the same time, ET didn't want to be used in that way. This was a, a quote he had in the Sun Herald later that year. I'd been here the longest of any player and my influence could have been considerable one way or the other. I didn't want that. What I did, I did for my own beliefs and my own reasons. I honestly didn't want to be influencing the other players to any degree. And it doesn't seem like they needed much influencing either way. It seemed like News Limited were able to sign most of them up without issue. But E.T. himself was put in another awkward situation by the fact that his manager was Brian Walsh, 
who also had the the PR account for the ARL. God. So for that reason, ET did most of the negotiations himself and left Walsh out of it. But so while Walsh was at the ARL technically, you know, fighting the good fight on their side, his star client, you know, was Super League's poster boy. It's just so messy. Yeah. And so Walsh eventually left the ARL soon after and got a job as a program manager at Foxtel. So (laughs) a bit of a sweetener there. So the Friday night's looking pretty easy and... You would have thought that would would have continued onto the Saturday morning with the easiest signing of all time, Brisbane. Invented Super League. Their recently resigned chief executive was now running Super League. They'd already signed up ALF on the Friday morning. So this should have been the easiest thing in the world. Saturday morning, uh, Rebo and Lachlan Murdoch were scheduled to meet all the players at ANZ Stadium and, you know, go through the formality of signing them to the contracts they must have surely knew knew were coming. So that's how it should have played out, but it didn't work that way. So by the Friday night, Brisbane were playing the Crushers, which just as an aside, we've talked about the logistical reasons for that April Fool's Day weekend, but surely John Rebo would have seen this, (laughs) you know, circled on the calendar and gone like, we're playing the the team that was put in the league to root us. (laughs) What, What a perfect weekend to... (laughs) it's funny it hasn't been talked uh, nothing i've read has mentioned that link the fact that this was the broncos playing the crushers they haven't mentioned that as a reason for that weekend being used but you'd have to think that would have come up at some stage i don't think it's the reason i think he's just happy that it was a coincidence (laughs) (laughs) Uh, regardless it, it worked out perfectly but the issue was that by the time of that game the word was getting out that players had been signed, the you know word of the court action that was served to the ARL. So the cat was out of the bag. And Saturday morning, you had on the front covers the fact that Super League was on. You had Wayne Bennett's face on that front page, which led to Wayne Bennett almost scuppering the whole thing. So he... So he'd been promised that the story would be kept under wraps and he didn't want to be associated with it until he signed. Uh, And then when the story leaked, he told all his players to not go to ANZ, to not sign the contracts that, you know, he was taking his ball and going home. The more we learn about this bloke, the more he's a baby. He definitely has form in this regard. Like you look at the East deal about a decade later when he was all but signed to go there and take Darren Lockyer with him. And then because the story leaked, he turned his back on the deal. But how can you blame something as big as this with all these people involved? One person tells yeah. some bloke who knows a journal or something like, it's unrealistic, it's childish. Yeah, and the fact that on both occasions, the mail, the story that got out was a thousand percent accurate, but the story going public and potentially making him look bad causes him to throw the spanner in the works. Yeah. And in both cases, he could hide behind the technicality that he hadn't actually signed anything. But like, I'm going to give my own erratum here because last week's episode, when I talked about the coaches that were signed up before April Fool's Day, I threw his name in there. Now, even though I knew that wasn't the case, he was so strongly associated with Super League that it just rolls off the tongue to put his name there. Absolutely. So like the fact that Rebo had confided in him, he knew Super League was coming. He supported it. So this is the thing. I don't um, pretend to be moral myself, right? But this guy's always positioned himself as the ultimate stand-up guy and the handshake deal guy. 
that's not the case. But this is what I want to talk about because it is the case. Like he is that guy, but he's also this guy, the, the guy that, you know, tries to ruin the Super League deal that he supported, the guy that, you know, <laughs> backs out of a deal that he'd accepted because someone mentioned that it was happening, you know. He's both guys. Yeah, right. He is the, you know, devoted family man and he is the guy that, you know, we all know what happened. It just annoys me that you want to boast that you're so moral all the time. I, but I think a lot of it isn't his boasting. I think it's the way this, his narrative is told. And it was such a gripping narrative for so many years. And then that narrative has kind of fallen apart the last few years. And you're getting more of the, the negative side. Yeah, it just rubs in a wrong way. When you see his PR journalists, you know, presenting this moralistic narrative yeah. still, it's like, come on, man. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the problem is that People in rugby league can't deal with nuance or gray area. (laughs) Like Bennett's either this, you know, flawless player focused super coach or he's like a self-serving piece of shit that only won because he had the Queensland origin team for 20 years, you know, (laughs) but there seems to be no room for like, he's he's a flawed guy. Who's a very good coach. You probably make a point. I think it's probably not as much him as the, as the narrative. Yeah. But it's annoying. (laughs) But I'm, I'm actually finding all this research, like a really like brilliant study on the complexity of man like all these figures are so flawed and they all did so many great things and made so many mistakes and there was ego and there was stupidity and there was greatness and there were all these things it's a mirror to us all yeah so um as a study of humanity i think that the super league war is up there (laughs) (laughs) but so back to the actual fallout from this leak that almost caused the whole thing to fall apart. So Rebo and Lachlan Murdoch were sitting, waiting in the car park, going like, where are they? Eventually, Willie Kahn turns up, so he obviously didn't get the memo. So they managed to sign him up. And in, instead of you know directing their anger at Wayne Bennett, where it probably should have gone, all they wanted to do was find out where the leak came from. And you know, leave aside that like, like the word was out. People on the ARL side knew now, and... News Limit only controls half the media. Like they, they can't keep the story from coming out on the I don't other know side. How he expected it to not yeah. leak. But so so Rebo was looking for answers as to how the story got out. And the finger of blame was pointed at Richard Farmer, who was a Canberra based News Limited consultant who was recruited to help with the job and was on the plane up to Townsville on that Friday night. One story came out from Kevin Neal, a Canberra executive, who said that Richard Farmer got pissed on the plane on the way up and told the press. <laughs> but Farmer himself said that he was acting on behalf of Ken Cowley and that he'd said to Ken Cowley, look, the story's going to get out. We've got to you know, get it out first to control the narrative in some way. And Ken Cowley gave him the go-ahead. Ken Cowley himself, when asked of which story we should believe, uh, had this nice quote, which I think can be applied to a number of other situations. When it comes to a choice between the conspiracy theory and the fuck-up theory, go for the fuck-up theory. <laughs> it's always more accurate, that's for sure. <laughs> and wh- whatever the truth of it, Farmer's fate was to be sidelined from the operations from there. And But that's brilliantly rugby league to get pissed on the plane. It's like the sponsorship guy on the boat with Brisbane. <laughs> the Forex cruise. Cost him to $10 million or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, but importantly... The failure to sign Brisbane on that Saturday morning caused major flow-on problems because it meant that Rebo then had to circle back to Brisbane and 
didn't have time to keep going with the plan. Bennett really sucks. Yeah. And when you think that this effectively cost Super League their best shot at Newcastle, so at the same time that Rebo had to go back to Brisbane and eventually get them all to sign on the Monday morning, Paul Harrigan was driving down the F3 to sign a loyalty agreement and would be you know, bringing the Knights back on the bus the following day. That's That would have ended the war right there. Would have saved us $300 million in two years of pain. But on that, when Newcastle was such a priority, wasn't it a blunder to not do that himself and leave Brisbane to someone else when they were such a lay-down misere to, to sign? Well, I mean, it sounds like if Brisbane falls over, the whole thing falls over. So, And the petulance of rugby league people to cut their nose off to spite their face yeah. is legendary. And And that... When you say that if Brisbane fell over, the whole thing fell over, my argument is as if it was going to, as if they weren't going to sign. And and there were people on the Super League side in the aftermath saying that the ARL blundered in not seizing on that and going up and, and signing them. I just think, I mean, it makes sense what you're saying, but I just think if you're sitting in a car park and no one showed up, you're thinking, what's going on? Let's sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> like Alan Lang, you know, in his book said that if the ARL had, you know, acted on it immediately... They could have got a few players to sign, you know, with a few big contracts. But I'm, I'm like, so they get, you know, Glenn Lazarus. They get a couple of other veterans. You know, there's never going to be a situation where the Brisbane Broncos were playing in the ARL Absolutely. in 1997. But also, it sort of goes against their what they were trying to do. You know, keep the traditional clubs. They're just like buying players and parachuting them into clubs, and you know, at the expense of local juniors. And- <laughs> Wouldn't have looked good either. But, I mean, that's the thing. They did then go out yeah. after yeah. Super League players <laughs> anyway. So um, they, they were very quick to see that high moral ground. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that the ARL did the right thing in just letting that go and focusing on battles they could win. And as it turns out, Super League did go up to Brisbane on the Monday morning and, and signed up most of the team. And all the while, as late as the 3rd of April, Paul Morgan was out in the press denying that Brisbane had signed and pledging his loyalty to the ARL. Is this fair income? Yeah. but um, Very Phil Gouldish, that's that behaviour. It's, it's very Phil Gouldish. But when on April 3, he's denying he's switching, but he did make the concession that uh, he said this, we owe it to our players, the people who made us great, to support them. And if our players see fit to sign, then we'll have to support them in that. So he made that concession, but was still saying that he was loyal to the ARL. And then by June, so not two months later, he's on record saying he's the architect of Super League. So <laughs> Might need an engineer in to look at those uh, architectural plans and see if they were faulty. So we'll move on from Brisbane and look at the Warriors. So they were signed up on the Sunday night in Auckland. So they played a game against Norths in Sydney in the afternoon, uh, got the plane back to Auckland and met a Super League representative at a hotel there. So it was News Limited solicitor Rob Topfer who was the, the one doing the deal based on figures that John Money and John Rebo had put together earlier. So each player was offered a contract at a certain level and Topfer was going to seal the deal. And this signing session gave some foreshadowing about the madness that was to come and the flaws in News Limited's game plan. So Topfer had no little football knowledge or recognition of the players he was signing up. So he brought Tony Tatupu into the room, offered him a contract. So Tatupu barely even let him finish his spiel before signing on the line. He pocketed his sign-on check and rushed out the door. Topfer called in the next player who introduced himself as Tony Tatupu. And he goes, who who was that last bloke? And Tatupu goes, oh, that was Tony Tumavave. And 
he looked down and realized that he just given a fringe first grader this, you know, huge <laughs> contract. <laughs> so had to sprint down six flight of, flights of stairs and tell him he was taking $40,000 off him and get back up to... <laughs> That's comical. But apart from that, Auckland was signed up pretty much without drama, which gave the New Zealand Rugby League no option but f- to follow them to Super League. You know what jogged my memory prepping for this show was uh, the name Gene Namu. Mm. He was a big name in the Yeah, 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 massive name. And they didn't really kick on with it, but uh, he was the key piece. Yeah. So this, this next one is a little uh, sliding doorsy, but Illawarra came somewhat close to signing with uh, John Rebo contacting Graham Murray on April Fool's Day which is seemingly the first serious discussion about the Steelers joining in. So in initial plans, they weren't considered as a standalone entity. Uh, And in fact, Cronulla's initial submission to Super League included a merger with St. George and or Illawarra if either of those parties were interested. And I think that this demonstrates that the Blitzkrieg was a new phase of the operation where it was sign first and work out the specifics later. You know, they had this grand vision in the first place of who was in, who was out. At this point, it was, let's just get what we can and crush the ARL that way. God, this is a haphazard way of doing it. Mm. I have nothing against St. George Illawarra Dragons. I think it's worked quite well uh, geographically and culturally, colours match, etc. But I think if it was St. George standalone and the Illawarra Sharks, and then people in Cronulla, if they really loved the Sharks so much, they could travel down to mm. Illawarra, that would have been a better result. Better result, but as a St. George fan, I don't know if we're viable in 2019 as a standalone entity. Yeah. Like, I think you are looking at maybe having to move somewhere. So I I think it's worked out well as a fan. Yeah. I've got no drama with it, but we've got to get rid of Cronulla then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And keep them. Yeah. But so, so Graham Murray's signing followed the same logic as Super League's prior targets, which was to get the coach who presumably has the trust and respect of his players, get them on board. So he was immediately sold by Rebo's pitch. I'll just read this. He told me what they had in mind, and all I could think was, how good's this? The bottom line was I was wrapped that we'd be able to stay together. We'd be able to hold on to players like John Simon, Paul McGregor, Brett Rodwell. Illawarra would finally be able to stick together. They were talking about increasing the ground to fit 30,000 and all the other stuff like taking the game around the world. It all sounded so good. A subscriber to the vision. But also you can see in that statement like elements of the character that Murray was known for. Like just a pure rugby league coach who wanted to do the best for his players. Is there anyone in the game that doesn't love this bloke? No, I know. Like, And and at the same time, he would have looked at that team, see that the plays he already had in first grade, look at the plays he had coming through. You know, Sean Timmons had debuted by that point. Trent Barrett was just around the corner. Luke Patton, you know, like there was a real team that, if there was, you know, money and a future behind them, which Super League was providing, you know, who knows? Yeah. Long-time listeners of the RLD will remember my story of meeting Graham Murray in the Coogee Bay Hotel uh, on the night of the Cowboys' first finals win. I remember what year it was, maybe 03 or something. And uh, carnival atmosphere. People were like almost almost putting Murray on their shoulders. Yeah. People were reaching over to shake his hand. He's mm. cackling and laughing and like just a real positive bloke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so with that enthusiasm, with that you know real desire to see the team stick together, he takes it to the Illawarra's board and to Bob Millwood on the Monday morning. And unfortunately, Millwood was less enthusiastic 
and said that he'd be meeting with the ARL that day. At the same time, Rod Wishart had been sent off for the first time in his career in the Steelers game that weekend, so he was due to go to Phillips Street on the Monday anyway, was bringing Paul McGregor as his defence witness, and as Graham Murray tells it, the big shepherd's hook came out and got them when they walked in, and so they were both signed up by the ARL um, right then and there. Shepherd's hook's the best yeah. uh, it's a classic analogy. <laughs> but Murray didn't know all that when he organised for John Rebo to come down to Illawarra on the Monday night and speak to the team. So a questionable choice of venue, which was the, the Wollongong Wales Swimming Club Room at North Wollongong Seapool. Uh, and this led to one of the most Graham Murray quotes of all time uh, when he was defending the choice of venue. Hey, it's nice. You get a room overlooking the pool. I had my 40th birthday there. Anyway, we put it on the tourist map. <laughs> so Murray signed a three-year deal uh, and Rebo also got Brett Rodwell, David Riolo, Neil Pincinelli, Peter Johnson and Martin Masella. Uh, most of those would later go back to the ARL. But the next day at Steelers training, Bob Millwood turns up uh, to outline the club's pro-ARL stance and bring along loyalty agreements, which I think 22 of the players signed up then. If we have any Illawarra listeners out there, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you felt at the time, ARL or Super League, mm. and whether you would have rather have gone now in hindsight. My thoughts of it, it's, it's interesting to think how they would have been placed after reunification if they had gone to Super League. Like my gut is they still wouldn't have survived as a single entity, but they'd probably be entering merger talks from a position of strength and would have been better placed to retain some of their identity. Yeah, I agree. It's odd that they were so expendable, though. It's like still a big area. It's yeah. Like one, one team town. Yeah. It's, like it's not much smaller than Newcastle. No. And, and I, yeah, I think that's why any talk to divorce the Illawarra from St. George is madness. You know, we have to have a presence there. Yeah, for sure. But so with, with this situation where, you know, Murray's pitching Super League, the, you know, Millwood's turning up to training with ARL contracts, and you've got, you know, some players signing for either side, signing for both. The players didn't really have the chance to consult and they they didn't get the opportunity to have that one-in-all-in stance that a lot of the other clubs, you know, you, you look at Norse and Canberra and um, Newcastle, they largely stick together. You asked me how my nerves were last week. It's like the conflict in the air of like yeah. Murray v. Millwood and the club and how awkward that would be. Yeah, yeah. It just makes me my skin crawl. Um, it's a great Paul McGregor quote from the time. Uh, I was confused all week, which uh, is, <laughs> this is a uh, natural state. As uh, <laughs> Hold on, let, let's keep it on 95. <laughs> I was confused all week, said Mary. I'm still confused. I had young blokes from our club ringing me and coming over for advice. I thought the ARL was the way to go for me. I still support them, but I really don't know what's right or wrong in all this. Imagine going to Mary, is you? <laughs> uh, but so the board decides to sack Murray. Uh, he finds out from Peter Fralingos, classic rugby league trope of God. <laughs> a journo letting you know the news. So uh, so the reason for the, the sacking was his perceived deception. The Illawarra board um, threw all kinds of accusations at him that he was inducing players to sign and, you know, offering them money, all, all these kinds of things. In Graham Murray's style, he took the decision with class and dignity. I'll just read this. This was his response to the board. Bob, gentlemen, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to coach first grade. You gave me a good side and I had a lot of fun. 
Even though we've had this run-in, I want you to know I still consider you my friends, and I'd like to have a drink with any of you later on if you feel like it. God, I miss this guy. It's yeah. so, such a shame we lost him. Yeah, yeah. The game needs him. Oh, yeah. Like, just that class and that dignity. You yeah, know? but no pretense. Yeah. And the reason we know about this quote was that, to his credit, Bob Millwood, you know, got that story out in the press. Even though they'd had this bad situation, they had to sack their coach, Millwood was, you know, full of praise about him as a person and said that it was an unfortunate thing, but Graham realizes he had to go. He's been the most successful coach we've had and he's very popular in the community. It was a tough decision. And Murray, like the, the gentleman of gentlemen, ended up being the only coach sacked on either side uh, because of the Super League drama. Uh, but said that he didn't regret it, that he thought he was acting in the best interests of his players. And, you know, he didn't try to influence them. He just said he thought this was a good way to go. But really, it, it was it was almost the making of him. Like, he took on that Hunter Mariners job and, like, what a good job he did with them. You know, finished a credible sixth in the league in their, in their only year. So that that was a funny Super League ladder where you had the five established clubs in the top five and the five expansion clubs finishing 6th to 10th. Yeah. And the Mariners finished 6th, uh, famously made the final of the World Club Challenge. Yeah. Without him there, though, God, that could have been a debacle. Yeah. And it was a debacle for Illawarra without him there. So uh, that instability and the loss of their coach meant 1995 was a write-off for them after, you know, building a, a team to compete. It, you know, kind of all fell apart. Yeah. That was the last of the the clubs that we're going to talk about on that weekend uh, being signed up or attempted to be signed up. Now I want to spend the rest of this episode breaking down the flaws in the Super League battle plan and the reason the ARL was were able to counterattack so effectively. So I've just got a list of a few flaws that we're going to spend a bit of time breaking down. So the first of it was that secrecy, the fact that so much of it was dependent on the story not getting out. So, you know, Rebo claims a leak, but we already know that the Telegraph had been informed already. Like the story was going to get out and get out from his own side anyway. There was better planning in the Watergate scandal. It's like crazy. (laughs) And Rebo said of the leak, it got out early on us. Had we got the weekend or even an extra day, it would have helped us enormously. But how could he possibly have thought that he was going to get that weekend. Like, if that is built into your plan... If it's hinging on that, don't do it. Yeah. You, you know, you don't storm Normandy <laughs> and, and then when the Germans are there. Like, you know, <laughs> like, in rugby league, you've got to budget for leaks. Oh, that's that's like 80% of your revenue. <laughs> but also, they're in partnership with a media company. Yeah. And I, I think Richard Farmer was right that, like, the best way to handle it would have been to try to control the narrative, get ahead of the story. When you have so, such a media empire behind you... Well, we don't know if that's the claret talking or, or what. <laughs> <laughs> the story's out there. So that in itself, if you need secrecy and your cover's blown, well, that's almost game over right there. But it's just one of a litany of errors. All right, what about this? How about this? If secrecy is so important, why not have a bunch of executives flying out simultaneously to do the meetings? Well, that yeah, that leads perfectly to the, the next point, which is boots on the ground or lack thereof. So because of that secrecy, they couldn't trust enough people with the plan, which meant that once the story was out there, the ARL started planning their counterattack. Meanwhile, the only people signing up players were 
you know, watching Cheers episodes on the flight home from Perth. <laughs> so that strategy, which was to be used as their advantage, the fact that they were, you know, doing it out of Sydney, you know, following clubs all over the country to try to keep it under wraps, ended up being a, a very costly flaw in the plan. Absolutely. But again, you're right. It didn't need to be. You, your news limited. Surely you can hire 20 people to do the recruiting or get it all done at the same time. And with all this planning, like we heard about, you know, this month-long, you know, putting all the logistics together, booking hotel rooms, so much of it seemed to have been done on the fly. So by by the weekend, anyone who just happened to be hanging around the News Limited offices was recruited to, you know, start signing players. That's what I mean. Like, do this ahead of time. Yeah. So, like, classic example, Malcolm Node was asked to write three days out of his diary from the 28th of March to assist with the battle plan. Uh, in the end, it was three weeks before he was back at his desk. God. He had to, after one meeting, he had to get his wife to send a change of clothes and a toothbrush in a cab because he had to catch a plane to Perth. Why was a Perth raid planned without someone there to sign them? Like I, it, Very off the cuff. And then there was poor communication, which led to people who had been you know, put on call to do some recruiting, just sitting there twiddling their thumbs and no one letting them know that there's players to recruit. So the Artana Skovich Hartnell uh, law firm had solicitors that News Limited had, you know, sent around the country for the job and, and just never got the call. But they hadn't even played the game. <laughs> well, that was the other issue. Not enough boots on the ground and the ones they had were the wrong boots. So they used News Limited businessmen, solicitors like Robert Topfer, and John Atanaskovic to deliver the message and to get the signatures. For a normal employee, that's fine, right? Like you respect the lawyer coming in, knows what they're yeah. talking about. But for a footballer, yeah. you're going to respect Gavin Miller coming in. Yeah, exactly. And so who does the ARL get? Bozo and Gus. Yeah. So not only people who have played the game, but the current New South Wales and Australian coach yeah. sitting in front of you. And this is a fundamental failure to understand rugby league culture and I think it's something that Rebo needs to wear a lot of blame for. Given that he knows the culture. Yeah. Like, I think he was just so seduced by the vision that he thought that the person selling it didn't matter. Yeah, agreed. I think he thought dollar signs and vision signs yeah. was all it took. But I, I don't know how they couldn't have... Because what they eventually did was to get ex-players in the mix. But by then it was too late. Do you reckon John Rebo had his own vision board <laughs> with pictures of like full full stadiums in Beijing and stuff? And it's like, it's going to come true. Uh, so one exception to this was Lachlan Murdoch who took on a, a hands-on approach and he was one who did have some sway and was very impressive. So uh, he was, you know, young and powerful and, and took a personal approach which players responded to. He was considered cool. Who? Yeah. Sarah yeah. O'Hare was his uh, squeeze at the time. Mm, yeah. And uh, he he re was he really won over one Matthew Ridge. So I'm just going to read this quote. We wait in Lachlan's office. I have no idea who he is. I think he's just some young kid who has something to do with News Limited. I have no idea he's, he's Rupert Murdoch's son. To be honest, I don't even know who Rupert Murdoch is. <laughs> and I know nothing about Super League. We yarn away for about an hour and a half. He's really interested in me, but not so much my league career as my background and my family life. He's obviously intelligent, talking animatedly about Greek philosophy. 
Not the stuff I usually talk about in league meetings. We got on brilliantly. I really like him and think, these Super League guys are really cool. <laughs> we don't talk about money or anything like that. He just talks about what he does and what he's doing and where he's been. I think, geez, he's travelled a fair bit for a young guy. <laughs> Is the Matthew Ridge book up there with the great biographies in league? Oh, my God. I, I've not read it. I, I love it so much. It's this is the one book that is clearly there's no ghostwriter, like yeah. not even a, an editor. <laughs> for a start, it's like printed on this like you know carbon paper that you use for receipt rolls. It's like this really like cheap quality paper. In his dialogue, he puts any like kind of like oh uh, like he just like um, it's such a great book. We've got a lot of that book coming up in the next chapter, but so, some golden quotes coming your way. I know he's uh, not shy and coming forward, Matthew. I hated him so much, and uh, after reading this book, like, I always loved like, him as a player. I thought I thought he was a great, great player, an underrated player. I think he's definitely an underrated player, but just an, an easy guy to hate in his prime. <laughs> uh, but so Super League did make up for for this era of the wrong recruiters by eventually getting Barry Russell from the Sharks and Michael O'Connor on board for the next stage of the raid. But even this was done in a haphazard way. Like it only happened when David Smith happened to see Michael O'Connor on Sports World talking up Super League, and then he had to ask who he was. You're joking. Yeah. So he w- he was watching with some other News Limited people and, and asked, who's this bloke? And they said, oh, that's Michael O'Connor. And he goes, well, why don't we get him? And so uh, O'Connor so o- O'Connor left the T-shirt shop in Noosa that he'd started running the year before and, and got on the Super League um, cause. How could you not know who Michael O'Connor was in 1995? Yeah. Yeah. And even if you're a News Limited type, like surely you've got the rah-rah background that you'd know him from that. Oh, my God. Uh, I think you're answering a lot of questions on why this went so wrong now. Mm. But I'll tell you something about Michael O'Connor. In Newcastle, uh, he was revered from origin, right? Uh, the, the goal, you know, from the yeah. sideline. And just a great, great player. And everyone loved Michael O'Connor. He was a glamour boy, swashbuckling center. Like he's a rugby league superstar. Rugby league, rugby league. He's a rugby league man. As soon as he joined Super League, it's like, yeah, man, he's, blo- he's one of those union blokes. <laughs> That's why. He's one of them union guys. As soon as it is something good, he's yeah, rugby league. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's something bad, he's back to the union. Uh, but Michael O'Connor's recruitment uh, led to one of my favorite uh, stories from the whole Super League saga. So the following weekend, the week- weekend after April Fool's Day, Brisbane were playing the Cowboys in Townsville. And Michael O'Connor was a, an occasional 2UE caller. So he went up with Ray Hadley and the team to call the game. So they flew him up. Uh, you know, Ray Hadley, obviously a, a staunch ARL man, and catches Michael O'Connor climbing in through a window to get to the Cowboys players and speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and subsequently was was no longer required at 2UA. Hilarious. Uh, and O'Connor had a, an odd recruitment strategy, uh, to put it mildly. So I'll read this. This is from Steve Price's book. I eventually received a phone call from Chris Anderson telling me to be at Bass Hill Inn to listen to what Super League had to say. When I arrived, Chris said to me, you're going to sign with Super League because that's the way the Bulldogs are going. I think you're probably worth about 80000 I decided that although 80000 sounded great, I was going to ask for another ten to twenty on top. After a while, I was called into a room where Michael O'Connor, one of Super League's talent scouts, was waiting. He introduced himself and said, basically you're here because we want you to sign to Super League. This is what what's happening with it. So how much do you think you're worth? How much should you get? I said, oh, I think 100000 
Michael started going off. He said, what have you done in your career that you think you deserve 100000 I told him, well, I haven't played a lot of first-grade games, but I played in the grand final last year. He fired back at me. I played for Australia. I played for New South Wales. I played so many games in first grade, and I never got over 100000 Why should you get 100000 You haven't done anything like that. <laughs> I think this is why News Limited didn't want rugby league people in the, in the room. <laughs> Turns into a slanging match. <laughs> But that's what rugby league people respond to. You know? <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Where is Michael O'Connor? Like he 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 is a rugby union man now, right? Like he yeah, just as he far went, as I'm he, concerned, he's right. Yeah, now. like he went back to the the Waratahs or whatever, and, and you never hear like in the you know old legends. You know, it's never Michael O'Connor. You never see him at any league event. I, I don't know, but it saddened me because as a kid, I just loved him. Yeah. Everyone in the schoolyard would be pretending after Origin on Michael O'Connor. Yeah. Imitating his uh, step and his kicking style. Yeah. Well, I, I have I have conflicting feelings because when I was a young kid, like I remember we liked him and then he went to Manly and my dad was like, we don't like him anymore. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. It's sad when I go back to the dark side. Mm. Uh, but, but moving on, one of the other problems was that these secretive tactics really left the door ajar for you know le- for legal problems down the track with, with issues of duress. And- I don't know how they thought they were going to get away with this. Mm. I, I, I suppose they thought once they capitulate, it won't be a problem. Yeah, yeah. So the, the pitch in that initial stage was sign now or you'll miss out. You know, so we, we have multiple reports. Uh, you know, Jerry McCracken saying that Rebo produced contracts and said if we didn't sign on the dotted line. We'd be left out in the cold once the competition was up and running. That's not so much a problem as the no representation. No representation. So no time or anything like that. Yeah. So the the no no player agents, that was our next flaw, but it's all tied into this. It's not player agents. I mean, a parasite's not that yeah. important. It's legal representation. Yeah. But at the same time, shutting out the player agents was to have bad ramifications with them. The arrow on the other side opened the door for them. And that that was like you know getting the cane toads in to get rid of the cane snakes, but <laughs> but in the short term it was a, a win for the ARL to do it that way. But in that Thursday night Canterbury meeting, for instance, Simon Gillies wanted to just let his wife know where he was, and according to Jared McCracken, Rebo said, "I prefer you didn't tell your wife where you are. We can't trust afford to trust anyone about this, and we want it confidential." If this gets out, it could jeopardize the whole Super League concept. I know if I told my wife about this, she'd lean over the fence and tell someone else, <laughs> and soon it'd be all around the neighbourhood. You know what they're like. <laughs> and this secrecy was, was, you know, pitched like all throughout. And the you've got to sign then and there. Like Brad Fittler said the same thing that it was told: sign now, you'll miss out. And you know he. I mean, I mean, it's one thing to be secretive, but then Simon Gillies' wife thinks he's having an affair because she can't track him down. You know? <laughs> and this made it very easy to sell the duress argument in court. So it's the other side to the loyalty agreements thing where you're you know, tying your own noose. Well, I just don't know how they thought that not allowing them to take the contract to a lawyer yeah. <laughs> is going to stand up. Yeah. But... So the last set of issues all come down to hubris, basically. Just the failure to have a plan B, the failure to imagine a situation where they're not going to the ARL on Monday, you know, negotiating a surrender. 
this is the thing for the whole series. We're here. The war is here because of hubris from ARL. The hubris to think they can stand over them to make them capitulate and merge before the war mm. brought us to this point. The hubris to think they could do this in a weekend and yeah. not stuff it up brings yeah. us here. Yeah. God. And, and it you know spirals downward from there. But so there was no plan that the clubs would resist their offers, that players would resist their offers. The plan was there'll be the domino effect, it's game over. So though that whiteboard, that war room whiteboard shows that it was written into the, the war plan that, you know, put in the diary on Monday, go to the ARL, offer them a five-year agreement, say Super League will start in 1997, like putting these terms of, of surrender into it. And it's like, well, fight the Battle of Amiens before you book the Hall of Mirrors, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this arrogant way that Super League planned for their success really contributed to, to their failures. It was clear the plan was get those big names, get a couple of clubs in place, and there'd just be a domino effect. And because of the ARL counterattack, which they didn't plan for, that domino effect never came. It's quite stunning, really. It's it's shades of Cuba with Batista going, oh, the grillers haven't got any fight in them. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. And once that opening sale failed, they were forced into altering their strategy and saying they were going to start the competition in 1996. So you could see that in the initial surrender part of the plan that was on that whiteboard that the competition was to start in 1997. But because it didn't go the way they needed it to go, it became let's start the competition in 1996. When clearly they didn't have the clubs or the players to do that. Madness. I don't, but I don't know what they thought Ariel was going to do. These are men that do not like being stood over their entire mm. life. It's in their literal DNA. Like they'd rather go down fighting and take you with them yeah, yeah. than surrender. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think the most staggering example of hubris in the whole situation is Ken Cowley deciding that he would watch how the battle unfolded from his property in Dungog. <laughs> so he... He went went for a little getaway and was, you know, get, getting filled in on how it was going. Just, I, I guess, imagining that he'd, you know, do the gardening on the Sunday and, you know, drive into Sydney on the Monday and, you know, set up the Super League office and go from there. <laughs> it also seems to indicate that he was planning to retreat from the battle a bit at this point. So you can see this also in clubs dealing with Rebo and Rebo would say to them, you're dealing with me from now on. And those clubs going, well, A we think you're an arrogant prick and B, we want to talk to the top guy. We, we don't want you. We want to speak to Cowley. Yeah. But Cowley was, you know, quickly forced to, to, you know, take over and David Smith was pushed upstairs. Malcolm Node took on a bigger role and Tom Mockridge, who was a, a news limited guy that was highly involved in initial planning was brought into the fold. So Cowley had to seize control and get his men back in doing the job. Well, uh, as fans, we know Malcolm Node from his Bulldogs days, mm. and he always seemed like a very intelligent and uh, competent man. So we've talked about it already, but that was the that was the other key fault: the no follow up, just the planning for capitulation and not having anything else in place. And I think Ian Heads summed it up nicely, so I'm just going to read this. Worth consideration is Super League's amazingly amateurish fumble after signing the first group of Canberra and Brisbane players. To not have had an infrastructure in place to permit a next-day knockout onslaught in the next major group of top players. In fact, it was five or six days before Super League got going, and by then the ARL had mustered their resolute Optus Vision Channel 9-backed rearguard action, turning Phillips Street into a virtual lolly shop for day's players, who walked in wondering, 
and walked out potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars richer. And the fact that news failed to even identify what the ARL's response might be is another glaring indictment. So they had a whiteboard heading, what will Packer do? And among the the scenarios they laid out were uh, threaten to sue the ARL and players, uh, send out an injunction. Paper their walls with risk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and exert personal pressure on players. But no idea that there might be a counterattack meeting money with money, contracts with contracts, and, you know, having a bit of an arms race. Well, I've got to say, it's not that unreasonable to think that they wouldn't want to burn hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> but at the same time, to not see the importance of rugby league to Optus Vision, yeah. it, it's unforgivable when they knew how important it was to Foxtel. Yeah, it still pains me to think that Optus Vision is part of this debacle. <laughs> but just to finish this segment of the show, uh, Ken Cowley gave an offhand remark to Ken Arthurson during later peace negotiations, which I think is indicative of the man and the, the cordial relationship that he and Arthurson maintained all throughout. But it's it's also quite telling in light of Super League's failure. So uh, apparently he said to Arthurson, gee, you overreacted. We'd only signed 50 or 60 players. Did you have to go and sign everyone who's ever won a football jumper? <laughs> Uh, so there'll be much more of that in the next chapter. Just to finish this chapter, I want to look at the media fallout, which I, I guess for you and me and probably a, a lot of other people listening, this was a, a crazy weekend Hell yeah. to, to live through. Uh, and it started with those headlines on April Fool's Day with the Daily Telegraph front page featuring the faces of Super League signings as if they were 9-11 terrorists. <laughs> In my memory, that was the April 1 uh, front page with all the players' names. But when, when I looked back, it was on the, the April Fool's Day page, they only had 10 figures. So it was Rebo, Sheens, Bennett, Chris Anderson, John Lang, Daly Langer, Dean Pay, Simon Gillies, and Terry Lamb. And it was the Sunday Telegraph sports page where you had 28 players with the headline, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's odd that Simon Gillies was such a major figure in this... Well, when I read the the full twenty eight, like there's some interesting names among this group. So uh, the the ten that we already named, plus Steve Renoff, Greg Alexander, Ricky Stewart, Brad Mackay, the only one of the twenty eight who it turns out the mail was bad. He of course signed with the ARL. Yeah. Mark Geyer, Les Davidson, Phil Blake, Bradley Clyde, Gene Namu, Paul Green, Sean Hoppy, Steve Walters, Ken Nagus, Quentin Pongia. Mitch Healy, Jason Croker, Steve Kearney, and Brett Mullins. So some names you'd expect and names you, you may not. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mitch Healy, good player. Good, you know, we've discussed him in our Hall of Fame issue, issues, but we wouldn't be saying uh, immortal. They got Healy. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Simon Gillies, I was always a massive fan, but I, I rated him as like a summer mannering type, a toiler. Yeah, yeah. A great club man and a great mm. uh, hard forward. But, yeah. Put him in the top ten. Like one of the ten, yeah. But I just wanted to share a personal memory of how like life went on, especially when you're a kid or a teenager that, you know, rugby league means so much. So I was going through the Daily Telegraph uh, in, in, you know, preparation for this, and I was staggered to find the front page of the Monday Telegraph um, when they had the, the Monday league lift out in the middle of the page. Yeah, I love the league lift out. And on the, on the front of that section was... Um, the headline Saints on the Bell with, uh, you know, the picture of Nathan Brown. So he'd scored a try 
to win the game against the Bulldogs. He darted from dummy half and scored, um, which like, was so cool for me as a Dragons fan who hated the Bulldogs. That flowing blonde hair yeah. in the wind. <laughs> and so I remember taking that lift out to school on the Monday morning, like holding it up in the air, like in, in triumph. <laughs> Meanwhile, like the entire game had fallen apart around me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> on a side note, I hope you got bullied for that behavior. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes back to the, that, that stop-start thing. Like it was easy to believe that this would all go away again. I think we all thought that it was just going to get worked out, mm. or we hoped. Yeah, we didn't know anything, but that's, that's how I felt anyway. So I know you were, you know, we've spoken about your pro super league allegiance. Had you worked that out by this point? I think I was a bit more uneasy at this point. I was going wherever Canberra was going anyway, probably. But I think I was not happy about this signing some players from some clubs and you know that sort of thing. I wasn't that thrilled with that part of it. I wanted to know what was going to happen fully or not happen at all. Mm. So if it got resolved and it stayed the same, I wouldn't have been too worried. Yeah. But by this point. Yeah, I think as much as I was eventually pro ARL, at this point I just wanted to not believe it was happening. That became a bit harder when on Sunday night you had players actually admitting that they'd signed. So the first were the Canberra players, so Daly, Stewart, Clyde, Brett Mullins. They confirmed with Channel 7 News that they'd signed. Alan Langer saw this and said that phoned Rebo and said, can I admit it now? Can I admit I've signed? And it all came out from there. Simon Goose says, can I tell my wife where I am? <laughs> uh, and interestingly, when the Broncos did eventually all sign up, it was Chris Johns who acted as the player's representative and, and broke the news on their behalf. So some signs there of what would eventually become his off-field role. Yeah. Uh, so the the last thing we have to discuss is the fact that Rugby League Week had already planned their 25th anniversary celebrations for that week. So their first issue came out on April 2, 1970. So that week's Rugby League Week was going to be a you know, celebration of all they'd achieve over that 25 years. And they'd already planned the cover story before Super League broke. So in... In his uh, editorial statement, Norm Tasker said, Talk about party poopers. Rugby League Week intended this week's issue to be a celebration of our 25 years as the Rugby League Bible. Super League has upset our party just a touch, but we're not going to let them spoil it completely. So they decided to run with the initial cover story. And obviously there was a lot of Super League talk inside, but I, I can understand their frustration. But if I was to choose one of the two that could wait a week... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, what is more rugby league than this? Yeah. <laughs> Just getting a Tommy gun and shooting both your feet. Yeah. <laughs> and on that, in that same rugby league week was a Sherlock comment that um, sends shivers down my spine when I read it. So I'm just going to relay it in full. The scars of rugby league's last few unbelievable days are cut so deep they'll last forever. Will fans ever forgive footballers who stand confirmed as absolute mercenaries? prepared to throw 100 years of tradition down the drain in the pursuit of the dollar? And will the fans ever forgive the league establishment for not protecting their game well enough, for not being tough enough to make the hard decisions, or innovative enough to make the changes that nearly everyone cried out for? The game is crushed, and the faith of people who have followed it is surely ebbing away. Super League or Star League or whatever may rekindle the game of 13 aside spectacularly, but it will be as something different. The old game died at the weekend, and rebirth is unlikely. Its return will not be as a sport, but as a megabucks business. Yeah, poignant. 
And with that, we get to the end of this chapter. So next week, you'll hear the ARL's response. And if you thought it was ugly already, uh, just wait. <laughs> uh, so hope you've enjoyed this episode. As always, let us know what you thought. The Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. And we will speak to you next week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.